this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Some of you might have heard about a little bit of a kerfuffle at this year's Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, CES. So what happened was the Laura DiCarlo team submitted this product called OSE to the CES Innovation Awards. And OSE is a hands-free device that allows for the blended orgasm, complete with micro-robotic technology. And they won the CES 2019 Innovation Awards honoree in the Robotics and Drones category. And to win, the product was vetted by the Consumer Technology Association, the CTA, and the CTA is CES's owner. And it was also vetted by a panel of independent judges. A month after the announcement, the team at DiCarlo was notified by CES and the CTA that their award had been rescinded. On top of that, they would not be permitted to showcase or exhibit their product at CES. They have given several inconsistent reasons for this award being rescinded. Quote, entries deemed by CTA in their sole discretion to be immoral, obscene, indecent, profane, or not in keeping with CTA's image will be disqualified. CTA reserves the right in its sole discretion to disqualify any entry at any time, which in CTA's opinion endangers the safety or well-being of any person or fails to comply with these official rules. So, women's sexual pleasure is either, according to this, immoral, indecent, obscene, profane, or not in keeping with CTA's image. Okay. Decaller wanted to know how they made it past all the judges and staff if this was the case. And the team received a letter from CTA's president and CEO, Gary Shapiro, and the executive vice president, Karen Chupka, declaring OSE didn't even qualify for the category. Never mind, it's the subject of eight pending patents for robotics, biomimicry, and engineering feats. Also, Tech aimed at male pleasure is perfectly acceptable and often lauded at CES. From the DiCarlo company's founder, Laura Haddock, quote, You cannot pretend to be unbiased if you allow a sex robot in the shape of an unrealistic female body, but not a vagina-focused robotic massager for blended orgasm. This whole conversation touches on so much more than just CES, but problems in the tech industry at large and really society as a whole. If you want to hear more conversation around this, I'm going to be guesting on the show Tech Stuff to dive into it. So go check that out. And in the meantime, here's an oldie but a goodie looking at the history of the vibrator. Enjoy. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, let's dive right into some statistics. Okay. Our favorite thing. All right. And it will, I think it will ease us into the topic of the day. Okay. So I want to talk about uh, something that was published in 2009, which revealed that about half of American adults use a vibrator on a regular basis. On a regular basis. And that is men, that's women, that's gay, that's straight. All these people using vibrators. 
And what was interesting about this study in particular, not just the number of people that use vibrators, but what was really interesting was that the women who used them had better sexual health because they're more likely to have a gynecological exam during the past year. They're more likely to do self-examinations to make sure that the body was still, everything was looking the way it was supposed to be. And men were more likely to do testicular self-exams too. So basically the study was showing that these people who use vibrators tend to take better care of all their their special parts. And the women and men also who were using the vibrators also tended to rate a little bit higher on sexual satisfaction. So, with no further ado, maybe we should back up 100 plus years mm-hmm. to figure out where, where all the buzz came from with vibrators. Because these days we might associate vibrators with sex toys and CD sex shops and things like that. But their history is purely rooted in medicine. Medicine, very, um, and very, you know, no eyebrows raised when no. the vibrator started uh, to appear in doctor's offices. It was, it was non-controversial at all, whereas, you know, you, you read about a study like this 2009 one, people are like, oh my gosh, all these people using vibrators. But I think the link is that the, the better sexual health and mm-hmm. the better health overall kind of links the modern statistics to this history we're going to go back to. Right, because one thing I found really fascinating about the history of vibrators is that it was actually considered far less controversial than the gynecological speculum. Right, because the speculum was inserted during an exam, Right. whereas vibrators were purely external use. But let's talk about why you might be using a vibrator in the Victorian era in the first place. One word. Hysteria. Hysteria gripped a nation. A nation. Many of nations. Women. The women just kept coming down with hysteria from from early, early times. Like oh, you've yeah. got people like Hippocrates, Galen writing about these uh, fits that women would have where they just couldn't breathe, where they just weren't acting right. Everything was oh, it's just crazy. Like the stereotypical female craziness, these these early uh, doctors could not figure out and they always blamed it on the womb and the uterus. Yeah, in 1900 BC, ancient Egyptians blamed hysteria, which we will later find out is really just sexual frustration, on the uterus wandering from the womb into the throat and making it hard for a woman to breathe. And a little a little uh, linguistic fun fact, hysteria comes from the word uterus. Mm-hmm. And we talked a little bit about that in the celibacy podcast, about how Doctors of olden days would would prescribe sex as this way to curb the wandering womb. Well, sex for married people, Molly. True, and that's that's where we're going to get into uh, why some some ladies needed more help than others. Yeah, because in the 16th century, if you weren't married, if you were say single or widowed or a nun, the cure for your hysteria would have been vigorous horseback exercise or movement of the pelvis in a swing rocking chair or carriage. Or they told uh, once trains started coming when they had the industrial revolution, they would tell women just to hop a train Mm -hmm. and to let the rocking of the train take care of it. But let's say that there were no horses around, you weren't married, or you were married and your husband just couldn't seem to solve this womb problem on his own. You would go to the doctor and what the doctor would do is he would massage the vulvular area Mm -hmm. till he brought you to what was deemed a hysterical proxism. A.K.A. An orgasm. And this would cure the 
classic symptoms, supposedly, of hysteria, which would include anxiety, sleeplessness, irritability, nervousness, erotic fantasy, sensations of heaviness in the abdomen, lower pelvic edema, and vaginal lubrication. AKA sexual arousal. Yeah. I mean, really, it's just curing your your libido. <laughs> and so the thinking is, is that maybe, uh, you know, people just weren't that knowledgeable about what might lead a woman to orgasm. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't a topic for polite conversation. Nope. And so going to the doctor to have this regular massage was not seen as, as anything deviant or, or wrong. It was purely curing medical symptoms. Yeah. The doctors didn't seem to get any pleasure out of it. It was just, you know... Another another day at the office. And because, you know, it, it was advocated by so many medical professionals, it was like, all right, this is something I'll have to do regularly. Every two weeks or so, I'll head into the doctor's office, get my massage, be cured from hysteria for a few weeks. And doctors would use vulvular massage for non-orgasmic purposes as well, including to treat constipation, arthritis, muscle fatigue, uh, laryngitis, and tumors. So bringing women to hysterical paroxysms, and men too sometimes, uh, had a wide range of applications. But one thing about these massages... Sometimes they were just kind of tiresome <laughs> for the doctors. Sometimes their hands just got really worn out. And I'm not trying to be crass. Yeah. There, there are medical records of doctors really Taking really hours yeah. to like try and, and cure this hysteria. And also, if you were a doctor in business, it was not uh, very uh, easy to see a bunch of patients mm-hmm. if you never knew how long a hysterical patient was going to take uh, to reach her paroxysm. And so uh, it was, you know, it wasn't a very good business model to have uh, these indeterminate uh, appointments going on. And also for for a while, water treatments became popular. And while they did work, maybe a little bit more, a little easier than, than the manual treatment, they weren't exactly clean and not exactly portable. So in the 1880s, Dr. Joseph Mortimer Granville comes along and patents the first electromechanical vibrator. And my goodness, were doctors everywhere relieved. Oh my goodness, it just took off. And there were all sorts of models that doctors could buy. You can buy like hand-cranked models. You could buy models that you operated with the foot pedal. There were some that were like forks and they vibrated that way. And Some were- hung from the ceiling. I don't know how that works. <laughs> and there were... I mean, it just uh, just every single model of a vibrator that you could imagine, even some you couldn't models, imagine. Ceiling models attached to tables, wire coils called vibratiles, <laughs> turbines, gas engines, and it was just it was a revelation for doctors that they could just you know turn this thing on and and it was worked much faster than uh, using your fingers. It was a little bit cleaner, and again, as we said, it wasn't like a speculum that you had to insert. They were just doing this on the external genitalia so it was on up and up according to society and get this the vibrator was only the fifth household device to be electrified after the sewing machine fan tea kettle and toaster so before we have the electric vacuum cleaner and iron we had the va- we had the the vibrator and by 1917 there were more vibrators in the home than electric toasters. I know, that's insane. Crazy. And 
so there were you would find them in all these catalogs. In fact, a lot of the knowledge we have about the vibrator today is thanks to a researcher named Rachel Maines, who was actually doing a uh, history of needlecraft in America. So and she was, took a spicy turn, <laughs> took a very unexpected turn because she was paging through this old needlecraft catalog and started finding these advertiser advertisements for home vibrators. And this wasn't from 1906. Mm-hmm. Imagine looking through all these old needlecraft catalogs and, and finding these ads that you would normally expect to find in, in saucy magazines. So that's when she ditches the needlecraft yeah. and uh, starts investigating why vibrators were being sold at that time and, and comes across this hysteria thing and, and the fact that the women weren't being really being uh, treated quite right by their uh, partners. And she ends up writing a book called The Technology of the Orgasm, which is really, I guess, kind of the the go-to book for the history of the vibrator. And just for fun, uh, here's here's an advertising tagline from one of those very respectable magazine ads for vibrators. It says, all the pleasure of youth will throb inside of you. Doesn't sound too bad. And vibrators were, in fact, so popular that they were a driving force behind the creation of the small electric motor. So really, I mean, this is a huge technological innovation that we have to thank, you know, the vibrator for. Mm-hmm. Without, without vibrators and this craze about women's hysteria, you know, would we, would we have toaster? a vacuum cleaner? A vacuum cleaner. And, you know, I mean, maybe the women would have never been able to get up to vacuum if they kept having all these hysterical symptoms that they never figured out how to cure. If we still had to go get vulvular massages every two weeks, <laughs> my God, time to podcast. how would we have a break through the glass ceiling? And men, don't think that uh, you were absent from this revolution as well, because 1899, just a few decades after the women's vibrator movement really gets going, John Muir, a.k.a. that legendary naturalist, mm-hmm invent patents of vibrator for men as well. So men are also using vibrators at this time. Their ailments can be cured by a vibrating massager. Probably probably not using them as much as women, but... You never know. You never know. So we've got vibrators being sold directly to men and women via catalog. We've got doctors administering uh, massages in their doctor's offices. Now, unfortunately, along comes Freud. I don't know. Maybe not unfortunately. I guess... I don't know. You can draw your own conclusions <laughs> because old Freud comes along and he's like... This is not going to work. We need to stop treating women's hysteria with these massages, with orgasms. They need to talk it out. That is the only thing that is going to work. You're not really solving their problems, but just, you know, putting a Band-Aid on them. Stop doing this. Talk to them. So, you know, you can, you know, Freud, you can make a ton of jokes about Freud and women and sex, but he was the one who, who brings an end to this. He ends all the fun. But right around that same time, Vibrators start showing up in stag films. That is true. In the 1920s, uh, as as Slate puts it, stag reels blew the vibrators cover. Because a lot of people, I guess, based on Maine's research, just sort of pretended that what was happening was not an orgasm. Yeah. It was just, you know, a a brief hysterical paroxysm. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we've mentioned many times now that nothing was going inside of mm-hmm. a woman. It was all outside, you know, no, no different them. than a back massage. Yeah. Because remember at this time, you know, vi- Victorian couples did not have Cosmo magazine to help uh, learn how to please a partner. So intercourse might have been very bland, let's just say. And, um, you know, at this point when you've got these stag films coming out, 
they're showing, you know, you, they're making that explicit connection between what the vibrator does and what happens in the bedroom. So that's, that's sort of when I think the first explicit that we could find link between sex and the vibrator mm-hmm. comes into play. Yeah, and once it becomes tainted by those stag films, the most famous of which was called The Nun Story. Not the one with Audrey Hepburn. Not the one starring Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> uh, but once, it, once vibrators get the sexy edge to it, they have to go under the rug. And it becomes something that scholars call camouflage technology. Vibrators don't go away. They just become home massagers. Mm-hmm. A back scratcher. Yeah. So um, that's how they were sold in catalogs is with very, you know, uh, euphemistic titles. You can't really say what it's for. And in some states, like uh, there's this case in Alabama where you can't say it's a sex toy. Mm-hmm. You have to show that it's used for medical purposes and going back sort of to that old Victorian era. So, um, but one interesting fact that I came across, because I don't remember this, was that in the 80s, uh, when Reagan was president, his Surgeon General, C. Everett Coop, mailed out this list of safe sex options to every household. Um, and vibrators were on the list. Yeah, and they did this in response to the AIDS epidemic at the time. So they were trying to you know, educate people on, on safe sex. And lo and behold, vibrators kind of come back into a little more public acceptance. Come a little more out in the open. You can least. stop using things like back scratcher to get yeah. them into catalogs. We all know why you're getting the Hitachi Magic Wand. Right. The jig is up. <laughs> So that was the history of vibrators, the buzz on this this fascinating device that may have, you know, led to the vacuum cleaner. Yeah. So if you have anything that you would like to add, please Bearing email. in mind that we do have a spam filter. So we do have a spam filter. So don't title it, the email vibrators. Keep it G-rated, folks. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And I have an email that was sent to that very address. It was from Kristen, but not you, Kristen. Not this me. is Kristen with a K. Okay. And she writes, I'm a librarian and I love my career very much. I graduated from college with a teaching degree and wasn't particularly happy in that profession. I realized that I didn't go into teaching because I loved teaching, but because I loved learning. Big difference. I went back to graduate school for my MLS and have been extremely happy in this profession ever since. When you tell people you're a librarian, they always assume that you work in a public library. I think it's important for people to understand that there are many opportunities outside of public libraries. Librarians are employed by hospitals, law firms, universities, museums, art galleries, manuscript galleries, private corporations, government agencies, and publishing companies. I've seen job postings over the years for companies like WebMD, ESPN, and Pixar, just to name a few. If someone enjoys learning on a daily basis and seeks variety in their occupation, librarianship is an excellent career choice. Maybe I should become a librarian. I I really want to become a librarian, I think. (laughs) All right, well, I've got another library-related email here from Lydia. Lydia writes, I am a professional librarian and have been for almost 15 years, and I guess I'm considered one of those cool or hip librarians. I have some fellow cool librarian friends, and we're happy to use our personal biases and interests to enhance our library's collections in interesting and maybe subversive ways. But... In general, I think most librarians are really square. Just try going to a library conference or large meeting. Hipsters will certainly find a niche, but as a whole, groupings of librarians are heavily weighted with the elderly female, grandma frumpy, can't dance, doesn't get out too much type. 
Don't get me wrong, some of them might be fascinating people too, but believe me, it's not like working for MTV. But I wonder, Molly, if MTV has a library. Oh, I bet they do. What about that? I thought you were going to ask whether MTV just has old people working there. Kurt Loader. <laughs> Zing. <laughs> and on that note, uh, you guys can write us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And finally, we would love for you to like us on Facebook. And I said finally, but I should have said second to last because really finally, you can read our blog, Stuff I've Never Told You, at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. <laughs>